Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to any guests who have joined us here today. Glad that you could be here worshiping with us today. Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's word this morning. God, we thank you and praise you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. You're worthy of praise, worthy. And Lord, I pray that you would be at work through the power of your Holy Spirit in this time right now, God, that you would encourage our faith, God, that you would strengthen our faith to be courageous and steadfast in the fight for life, Lord, that you would, um, we pray this morning, we pray that you would bring abortion to an end in this nation. We pray, Jesus, that, that abortion would be outlawed in all 50 states and that it would become unthinkable, unthinkable in this nation. Lord, would you help us now this morning? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Well, uh, today's Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and as you probably guessed, we are taking a break from our uh, series in Second Peter. We've been in it for two weeks, so we figured we should probably take a break. Um, <laughs> today is the anniversary of the tragic Supreme Court decision that supposedly found a right to abortion in the Constitution. Here and there, there have been attempts to to codify, to make Roe the law of the land, to, to make it a law that abortion is legal, but it is not. Um, that decision has brought misery and death in our nation for nearly half a century. 49 years, over 63.5 million babies' lives destroyed. And how many lives of men and women torn apart through the decades dealing with the fallout of having and abortion. The sanctity of life trampled. 63.5 million. To, to understand that number, that is the population of Canada, Ireland, El Salvador, Haiti, and Jamaica combined. This year, abortion will end the lives of roughly three people every two minutes, every single day, all year long. Abortion remains the greatest injustice, the greatest moral issue of our day in America. But there is hope because the numbers of abortions have been going down. That is largely due to the successful efforts of the pro-life movement in educating people and in passing pro-life legislation. And this year is special because the Dodd case is before the Supreme Court both sides understood that this could possibly overturn Roe. I pray that it does. I hope that you pray that it does. But even if it does, our work will not be over because it will go back to the states and states like Illinois, which is one of the most pro-abortion states in the U.S., there will still be much work to do. But Gallup surveys show that more and more people are becoming pro-life, especially young adults, which I think is awesome. The declining abortion rates, the pro-life legislation, the growing numbers of people who are pro-life, the possibility that Roe could be overturned, all of these things give us reason to hope. They all give us encouragement to press on in the fight for life. It encourages us to press on in this good work until abortion is outlawed in all 50 states. And not only that, until it becomes unthinkable in the minds of Americans, just like slavery 
is and has become. Now, before we look at our text this morning, I want to look at two foundational truths. The first is that human life begins at conception. This is true theologically, scientifically, and logically. First, theologically, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 17, teaches that God makes, he knits together every person in the womb, that they are wonderfully made, that he knows each one of them as a human being, and that he has a plan, a unique plan for their life. In Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25, we learn that God considers the unborn people. And that life is given legal protection in Exodus 21, verse 22 to 25. Second, human life begins at conception scientifically. At conception, a completely new and genetically unique human being person is formed. Before that uh, moment, that person with their unique DNA did did not exist. But at the moment of conception, when, when egg and sperm unite, that single cell called a zygote, that is a human being. Every one of us in this room, we all started off as a single cell, all the DNA that we would need, and it's completely unique. That person, it's not mom, it's not dad, it's a completely unique person. If you look at any embryology textbook, life begins at conception, and from there it just grows and develops. By three weeks, the baby's heart is beating. By six weeks, there are brain waves. By 12 weeks, every single organ system is present. Nothing new is added. Everything just simply grows and develops from there. Finally, it's, it's illogical to say that a fetus isn't a human simply because it's not fully developed. That would be like saying a toddler is not a person because they're not a teenager yet. The fact that a baby can't survive on its own does not remove personhood. Even toddlers can't survive without help, but that does not mean that they aren't people. The point is, if it's human, then it had to be human from the beginning, human from conception. At every stage of development, then, the unborn are people, and I spend time here because that is the central issue. If this is a person, and it is, then that means whether chemical or surgical, there can be no doubt that an abortion ends a human life. The second foundational truth that I want to start with today is that there is healing and forgiveness in Jesus Christ for those who have had an abortion. This is so important, and I want to stress it right away at the beginning. Abortion devastates the lives of men and women who go through it. They struggle with intense guilt and shame and self-hatred and depression and grief and regret and loss. It's why women who've had an abortion are far more likely to commit suicide. This is why we need the hope of the gospel. Amen? The hope that there is healing and forgiveness for those who repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. No past sin is so great that it cannot be forgiven. And not only that, God not only forgives but he will also comfort and strengthen and restore you in Jesus Christ. I read Psalm 23 in my devotions this morning, and the line that jumped out at me is, he restores my soul. So if you or someone you know is struggling with this, we understand that it's difficult to talk about it, but 
we know women that we can connect you with who will help you to find healing and forgiveness and hope through Jesus Christ. Now, I can't say everything in one sermon. I won't be saying everything that needs to be said today. If you want more equipping on personhood and why we should protect the unborn legally, I address that in the sermon, Protecting the Most Vulnerable Persons. If you want more equipping on how to answer pro-choice arguments about when life begins, I address those in the sermon, Intricately Woven in My Mother's Womb. If you want more on helping women in particular, I address that in the sermon, Love Them Both as Yourself. The focus for us today is this, take action to defend life through courageous faith. Why? Because life is beautiful and it pleases God. This morning, we're going to look at Hebrews 11.23 to encourage us to live with courageous, risk-taking, pro-life faith. So what is Hebrews 11 all about? Chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews ends with this strong exhortation to persevere in the faith. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. Those who persevere in the faith have assurance and great reward. It sounds like a line out of last week's sermon. And then it says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Hebrews 10, 37 to 39. Those are the last four verses of, of chapter 10. The exhortation here is, don't shrink back, but live your faith courageously, steadfastly by faith. That's how we should live. Then in Hebrews 11, we get a whole list of examples. Men and women from different points in Israel's history with different circumstances and different outcomes, but they all have this one thing in common. They are all examples of those who did not shrink back but lived by faith. People like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and many others. That's why it's sometimes called the Hall of Faith. Now, the conclusion doesn't come until Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where we read, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, in other words, like them, let us also cast off sin and run our race with endurance. Not because they're watching us. No, no. It's off, this verse is often misunderstood that way. But that's a misunderstanding. The author is not saying run with endurance because all of these saints are watching you, but by you watching them, learning from them, following their example. They are a witness to us of what it looks like to live by faith. And then he gives the supreme example, that is Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith, so that then the people in Hebrews 11 stand as this, this witness, this example to us of what it looks like to live with steadfast faith, courageous faith. You can see, I tried to highlight it on the text here, the end of 10 mentions endurance and faith. The beginning of 12, we see that again, endurance and faith. And smack in the middle in chapter 11 are all these examples for us. We're just going to look at one, one, there are many examples, 
Look at one today, Moses' parents. Did you know that Moses' parents are mentioned in the hall of faith? I've been asking people that question, and most people give me a blank stare. Like, no, I didn't, I didn't know that. If you didn't know that, don't feel bad. I'd never noticed it either until last summer uh, in, in August I saw this. And I thought, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, wow, that, is, that will be the perfect verse for my next pro-life sermon. So let's read our text for today. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Hebrews eleven twenty three. Man, what a powerful encouragement to strengthen our faith in the fight for life. This great faith of Moses' parents in defending life. But to understand this, we have to remember what was happening historically, which is why I had us read Exodus 1 and 2. That's where the history is found. So turn there in your Bibles, back to Exodus chapter 1. God's people are in Egypt. A new Pharaoh rises to power who doesn't know Joseph. And as Israel multiplied, he feared being overthrown. This Pharaoh was a tyrant, and tyrants do not want to let go of their power. So he tightened control. His first strategy was slavery. He was going to beat them into submission. He set taskmasters over them who treated them ruthlessly, verses 8 through 14. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, verse 12. So his first strategy failed. Since slavery didn't work, he tried slaughter. He called the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, who likely oversaw a, a larger group of midwives. They were probably overseers. And he said to them, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. This, this was to be a quick and private slaughter. He wanted them to slaughter the Hebrew baby boys right after they were born. Now, if that sounds horrible to you, that's because it is. It's very similar to partial birth abortion. And if Pharaoh had the technology at the time, I think he would have used abortion. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. In doing so, they stand forever as pro-life heroines. They risked their own lives to defend life. They disobeyed the king's edict because it contradicted God's law. They obeyed God rather than men, which is exactly what we're supposed to do. As Riken puts it, there are times when Christians not only have the right, but also the responsibility to resist. Now, the reason they had the courage to do this was because of their faith in God. <clears throat> they feared God. They acted out of faith rather than fear. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So God blessed them for their courageous faith in taking action to defend life. Now, when Pharaoh confronted them and said, why did you let them live? They said, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. They lied to a tyrant who has no right to the truth. Pharaoh declared war on God's people, Deception to protect innocent life from a tyrant is justified, like the Ten Booms lied to the Nazis to save the Jews. 
Had they told the truth, had the midwives told the truth, then all of the midwives would have been killed as well. It's similar to Lila Rose and her team using deception to expose and gather evidence of Planned Parenthood, uh, Planned Parenthood harvesting babies' organs to sell them for a profit, which is illegal. They were right to do that. So slavery failed, private slaughter failed. So now Pharaoh ups the ante and he tries public genocide. And this brings us to Moses' parents, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. He issues an edict, a mandate to all his people saying, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We can see how sin progresses here. What was first private eventually becomes public and pulls many other people into it as well. Abortion used to be done by a few doctors in secret, but after Roe, the Supreme Court ruling, abortion clinics opened up all over the country. The numbers of abortions skyrocketed, as did the number of people participating and perpetrating this evil. Pharaoh demanded all Hebrew baby boys be drowned in the Nile. I love saying that, Hebrew baby boys. Hebrew baby boys. It's like a tongue twister. That's the historical situation into which Moses was born. And so we read, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now we need to understand the focus of this narrative is on Moses. Um, Moses' parents, they already had Aaron. They already had Miriam. She was a little girl. We learn that later in the story. The point is they were born before this edict came, right? This is their first son after this edict. And can you imagine? They, they hid him for three months, having to keep this baby quiet. Just, just try to imagine what this would be like for just a minute. I think it would be terrifying. Babies are not quiet. And you would have to live constantly knowing that if any single Egyptian heard your baby crying, they had the right to come and take your baby boy and throw him in the Nile and kill him. I bet they lived in constant fear of discovery. Why did they do it? Two reasons. Number one, first, because the child was fine, Exodus 2.2, or the Hebrew, or excuse me, in Hebrews, the word is beautiful, but here in Exodus 2, the Hebrew is the word tov. It just means good, but that word has a very large semantic range. Um, it's kind of like the English word back. It can mean a lot of different things depending on how it's used in its context. In this context, the word good is something similar to what God says after creation when he looked at all that he had made and he says, it is very good good as to quality and value. In Hebrews eleven twenty three, it says, they hid him because they saw the child was beautiful. The word in Greek means more than just external beauty. It includes the quality or the worth of something. He's beautiful because of his quality, his worth. In other words, they saw the value of this precious life and it was worth risking their life to protect it. It was worth great personal sacrifice to give this child a shot at life. In, in our day, many people consider their own comfort, convenience, or ambitions of greater worth than the life of the child. That is a cold calculus. Moses' parents did what they did because life is sacred. That's 
the point. Life is sacred. It has dignity, value, and worth because we are made in God's image. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Just two, male and female, and both are equally in God's image, equal in value, dignity, worth, regardless of what they do or do not do, because that is not where our worth is found. The command not to murder is grounded on the truth that humans are made in God's image. Genesis 9.6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The sanctity of human life is based solely on the fact that humans are made in God's image. The value of life has nothing to do with age, status, ability to contribute to society, quality of life, circumstances of birth, goodness, sex, skin color, or anything else. It is simply because we're made in God's image. And what that means is all human life across all ages, every category that you can think of, all of it has dignity and value and worth and ought to be protected. In this sense, life is beautiful. It's sacred. It has intrinsic value. That's the reason they hid Moses. They saw their precious baby boy and they took action to protect him. During the oral arguments in the Dodd case, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett suggested adoption as an alternative to abortion. She has several children, and she also has adopted, and she has a unique perspective on this on the court as a judge. And in response to what she said, there were people arguing that adoption is a greater burden because it's so hard for a mother, once she's delivered a child, to give up the child. Elizabeth Bartolet, a Harvard law professor and a radical opponent of parental rights to homeschool, called this argument for adoption ridiculous. She said, it's not going to be, and listen closely to her words, it's not going to be an emotion-free non-event. There's going to be bonding and connection and a sense that it's an unnatural event to give your child away. Of course, this is a stunning admission that it's a child first, but it's also shocking to hear someone try to argue that giving up a child in adoption is somehow more unnatural than killing it in abortion. That abortion is better because the mother doesn't have to go through the trauma of bonding with her baby and then giving it up for adoption, which of course ignores the trauma that she's going to experience from having an abortion and totally ignores any consideration for the baby. Now statistically, if a woman carries an unwanted pregnancy to term, most choose to keep their babies, and that's because of the attachment, the bond that forms. I think that's what's being described in Hebrews 11.23 and Exodus 2.2 of Moses when, when, when it says he's beautiful. They're overwhelmed with love for this child. They see the child is beautiful. He is precious. He has value. That's how it's supposed to be. It is disgusting and demonic to suggest that it's better to kill your baby than give it up for adoption because you have to overcome the bond with the child. On the contrary, it takes greater love to give them life and then give them to a good family if you are unable to care for them yourself. 
That is self-sacrificing love. It is never love to end their life. Now, this isn't to minimize the difficulty of giving a baby up for adoption at all. It would be extremely difficult. It's simply to point out the twisted arguments used to prop up evil. So the first reason they hid Moses is because of the value of their precious baby. The second reason is the same reason that the midwives did what they did. They feared God, not man. Hebrews 11.23 says they hid him because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They're being commended, praised in Hebrews chapter 11 for their courageous faith. Their faith is evident in disobeying the king's edict, the edict of a tyrant, in order to protect and defend life. Is God pleased when we give ourselves to the fight for life? The answer is yes. Yes. Now, perhaps you've been wondering, what were their names? We learned their names in Exodus 6. Moses' dad's name was Amram. His mom's name was Jochebed. You know what? These were just ordinary people. Ordinary people who were living their faith, putting their faith into action. It's their faith in action that makes them extraordinary. There are two more pro-life heroes. I think it's encouraging to note that right at this darkest moment in Israel's history, when God's people are facing growing and growing opposition and tyranny seems triumphant, God was already working to bring deliverance for his people. It is incredible that Moses was brought safely through the very waters of the Nile where he should have drowned. He was adopted by the kindness of the daughter of the very king who intended his death. His very own mother became his nursemaid, the person who loved him most and was best suited to do it, and she got paid for it. God had his hand all over this story from start to finish. Only God can accomplish such things. Amen? And this gives us such hope, such hope in the fight for life, such hope with everything that's going on in our country right now. Both the midwives and Moses' parents are examples of the kind of bold faith that is needed in the cause for life. Both were willing to risk their own lives. So does God look favorably on those who fight for life? Yes. They're both commended. They're both praised. Both stood against tyranny, and they were right to do so. The question is, do we have such tyranny in America and we don't have anything like China's one world policy. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. But there are other examples. Let me just, just give a couple. These are examples where the medical profession and the power of the state, the government, and the dignity of life collide with each other. In 2016, Illinois passed a law that mandates forces all medical professionals to counsel women about the so-called benefits of abortion. In other words, the state of Illinois says that medical professionals have to tell people about how abortion is good, regardless of their moral, ethical, or religious beliefs. Now, thankfully, ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, filed a lawsuit representing dozens of medical workers and pregnancy centers 
and they obtain an injunction. That prevents the law from taking effect. But that case is ongoing today. If that law were to go into effect, that would be an example of government tyranny that should be resisted. Pro-life doctors and medical professionals should not obey a law that forces them to violate their moral conscience and that contradicts God's word. That would be the time for the midwife option, time to obey God rather than men. I know what this is like personally. Before I became a pastor, I was a pharmacist, and when we moved to Illinois, Illinois had a law on the books saying that pharmacists were not allowed to practice their conscience. You had to dispense all forms of oral contraceptions regardless of your religious beliefs, etc., etc. So I quit my job at Walgreens because I will not do that. And I had to go and find a job. Thankfully, praise God, God provided a job at a long-term care uh, pharmacy where that wasn't an issue. So I know what it is like to go through this. Now, we could, we, there are other issues that we could talk about today in this, in, that, that, that have the intersection of the medical profession, the power of the state, and the dignity of human life. We could talk about the fact that Illinois already has a law on the books preventing conversion therapy. And in Indiana and West Lafayette, they're trying to pass a law that's even broader than the one that we have. Canada's about to do the same thing. You're you're not allowed to to help someone who's battling with same-sex attraction or gender gender identity confusion. Uh, You can't counsel them according to biblical truth, even if they want it. You can counsel them away from biblical truth, but you can't counsel them to it. We could talk about vaccine mandates for children. But I want to keep the focus today right here on this issue of abortion. And I want to share this story of Kathy Sparks and her husband, Mike, as an encouragement to us this morning. I read this in the November 2021 issue of Faith and Justice. The story is called Life After Death, and it's by Chris Potts. In her early 20s, Kathy, um, she was in a bad spot. She was buried in debt. They had a two-month-old baby. Her marriage was falling apart. They're on the verge of divorce, and so she decided to take her own life. But she failed, so she decided to call her mother-in-law, who she considered a religious fanatic, and her mother-in-law said, Kathy, put the gun away get the baby, and come over here. She did. On the way, she got into a car accident. She got hit by a semi. She made it to her mother-in-law's house, and her mother-in-law led her to Christ. The next day, she went home, and she told her husband that she didn't want to get a divorce, and her husband, Mike, was shocked. He went over to his mom's house, ranting, what happened? Like, what did you do? And then his mom helped him come to the Lord and become a Christian as well. God saved their marriage. At that time, Kathy was working at an abortion clinic. She'd been working there for a a month, but she didn't quit right away. It took three months, three months to the day before the Lord opened her eyes to what was going on. Her husband, Mike, was reading in the Bible. He was reading in Revelation about being lukewarm. He, He talked to his wife, Kathy. He said, look, I think we're lukewarm. Uh, 
He said, he said, quote, we either have to get into this walk or out of it, but we can't continue to be lukewarm. So they prayed that night that God would show them anything in their life that was displeasing to him, and they prayed that they would be fully committed to Christ. Kathy says, the next day I went into the abortion clinic, and it was a night and day difference. It was freezing cold. There was a horrible smell throughout the building that no one else could smell. Early that day... Um, Early in, in her work day, she, there was a patient that she helped assist with that was 23 weeks gestation. She saw the doctor abort the baby piece by piece, and in the process, the baby boy's perfectly formed face. She went to the cleanup room and began weeping, and the director of the clinic came in and said to her, pull yourself together, act like a professional. And... She couldn't stop crying. So they put her just off doing some other task for the rest of the day. And the next day, she went to work, and the clinic director came up to her right when she walked in the door, and she said, I had a very vivid and bad dream that you were going to tell me you're quitting because of your religion. <laughs> Kathy said, I've become a Christian, and today is my last day. She walked out. Walked out three months to the day. The author of the article writes, time and their new relationship in Christ brought remarkable healing and change to Kathy and Mike. They chose to stay married and had four more children together. The Sunday after she quit the clinic, they joined a local church and became very active there, growing in their faith and their love for God and for each other. Now, she only worked at the clinic for a total of four months. She, she was tremendously burdened with guilt and shame for having participated in about 700 abortions. She repented, but she couldn't talk about it. It took five years before she told a Christian friend about what had happened, and that was the start of a healing journey for her. Her friend pointed her to the forgiveness of Christ, saying this, Jesus didn't die for most of our sins. He died for every one of them. If you hold this against yourself, it's like you're saying that the work on the cross wasn't enough. That was a huge turning point. Her husband, Mike, then had a dream that they were going to start a, a pregnancy center ministry, and Kathy had never even heard of that. She didn't even know what it was. But shortly after that, she uh, was given the opportunity to just talk on the radio about her experience at the abortion clinic, and eventually the two of them started Mosaic Pregnancy and Health Centers in Granite City, Illinois just across the river from St. Louis. They've served over 20,000 people the last 34 years. They had two desires when they started, to save babies' lives and to share the gospel so people could come to Christ. Kathy says this, when you have the opportunity to lead someone into eternity, to have a personal relationship with Jesus, it is unbelievably exciting. And then when they choose life for their unborn babies, I love it, I love it. She says, now her children have grown up helping their parents in the fight for life. Her daughter, Hannah, says this, I just didn't know a day that the ministry wasn't a part of our lives. I knew about abortion and pro-life issues as far back as I can remember. I don't remember not understanding clearly what the fight was about and, about and, and how important the issue of life was to God. And understanding that was why we did what we did. Now, her husband, Mike, passed away from cancer nine years ago, but the author writes, 
Kathy's unswerving faith in God and compassion for people continues to set the tone and the work of Mosaic. Of course, they have the challenge of operating a a pregnancy center in one of the most pro-abortion states in the United States. One of the most aggressively pro-abortion states. So in 2016, remember I mentioned that law that passed where you had to, as a medical professional, discuss the supposed benefits of abortion regardless of your religious beliefs and convictions, Kathy and Mosaic joined that ADF lawsuit. She's fighting against that unjust and tyrannical law. She says it's an attack on their freedom of religion and conscience. It's an attack on their freedom of speech. Kathy said this, if it's the last thing I do as president and CEO of this ministry, I will see this out to the end of her ministry. She says, it's not just about the one life that is saved but the many, many lives that the one is going to touch. Her daughter Hannah said, I remember growing up, my mom always said, there's a battle being waged in heaven and on earth for the lives of the unborn, and we're the people standing on the front line. With that, you come under attack. But if we don't fight the battle, who will? Man, there are so many things I love about Kathy's story. I love... I love the hope and healing that's possible in Christ. I love the power of God to transform people's lives that's evident in her story. How she and Mike involved their kids so that now they're committed in this ministry. They're leaving a godly legacy. I love her her boldness and courage and being willing to stand against tyranny from the government. Her tenacity and endurance persevering in this ministry for 34 years in the cause for life, despite the challenges, despite the sacrifices of ministry, her desire to save both lives and share the gospel and make disciples, which is the ultimate salvation, her impact on so many lives, and of course, man, her courageous faith. His awesome story. The midwives, Moses' parents, and Kathy Sparks, Mike and Kathy, they stand as examples for us to follow. Examples of courageous faith in the fight for life. There was a human coalition survey that showed that only a fraction of those people actually participate in any efforts to end abortion. The two main reasons that people choose not to get involved was lack of conviction about what they believe and lack of courage. They wanted to avoid the conflict that speaking up would cause. And I want to encourage us today, it's time for us to get in the game going to be hard, but it will be worth the sacrifice. So what can you do? Let me suggest just a few things. First, prayer. We have to pray for the end of abortion consistently and fervently. Now, the, the weekly email had 14 prayer points that you can pray and pray for those who are involved, the doctors, the nurses, the women, the babies. Pray for all of that, right? You know, my kids asked me after a pro-life sermon, what can we do You want to know, kids, what you can do in the fight for life? This is it. Praying every day consistently is a powerful impact. Number two, give to pro-life organizations. Give. It will shape your heart as well. Education, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. The more people know, the more likely they are to oppose abortion and to stand for life. Take political action, vote for candidates who are going to protect life, work to pass pro-life legislation, work against legislation that contradicts God's word, God's truth. 
volunteer, give your time. Network, we work with them. If you're interested in this, come and talk to me and I can get you connected to them. Sidewalk counseling, pleading with women as they enter the clinic right there on the front lines. That takes both tremendous courage and tremendous compassion at the same time. Boldly proclaiming the gospel with loving kindness, adoption and foster care. We've got to step up as the church and care for these kids. And finally, compassion ministry, being ready to care for both the mother and the child. Supplying their needs, building relationship, providing housing, whatever it is. Again, if you're interested, we can get you connected. There's a lot to do. Fear God, not man. Take action to defend life through courageous faith. Why? Because life is beautiful and it pleases God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you and we praise you. And we thank you for saving our life. We thank you for the hope and the healing there is in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for these examples of courageous faith to spur us on in our own race. God, help us to endure faithfully. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith. God, help us to take the next step to act, to defend life, whatever it is. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just, for each person, bring conviction for them, conviction for them for how they can get involved. Lord, we we just give this to you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. We love you. And all God's people said, amen.